I want you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Romans and chapter 12. <clears throat> We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 16 this morning. Last Sunday we had a discussion about envisioning life together in the body of Christ. Um, a sermon about God's design, the divine design for the church and the aim and purpose of that design. This week, the text moves into a section on what I'm calling enriching life together. So first we envision life together, God's vision, the divine design for the church. And then this Sunday, I want us to work through a discussion about enriching life together. And that is to say that each one of us as believers, as members of the body of Christ, makes a contribution to the overall health and well-being of the church that God has called us to be part of. As I think through church life and when I go through our chapel membership seminar, I, I, I use three words to kind of describe how people function in the context of church life. All right, and these are kind of three descriptives is my, maybe how you see them. Uh, the one word is this. Some people by nature are independent. Um, and that is to say this. They live life alone and receive and give little input. Okay, there's just a tendency on the part of some of us, and all of us have a bent in, in, this, in this little matrix. So some are independent. Some are dependent. Now, this is going to sound a little harsh when I read this, but I hope that it is challenging to you. Dependent people tend to live at the expense of others. They are much more inclined to take rather than give. They're consumers rather than contributors. They are spectators rather than team players. And that's not a category I think that most of us want to say, yep, that's me. Uh, but the truth is that all of us can slip into these various categories. We can have those tendencies to focus on what we're receiving rather than on what we're giving. We can be very inward in our conversations, very self-focused. Everything always ends up talking about me as opposed to being concerned about the team and others. And the last category, I think, is a more biblical understanding of how we should live in church life. And that is the word interdependence. Okay, so there's those that are independent, don't really need others in their estimation. There are people that are dependent who tend to absorb from the church life but don't contribute to church life. And then I think we have this biblical category of interdependence. People who understand the value of life together, who give and receive, and who understand that we succeed as a team, not as individuals. That's God's divine design for the church that we looked at last week. The biblical vision for the church is always expressed in the New Testament in pictures. There are analogies that Paul regularly uses to communicate what the church is to be like. And those, the two primary pictures, I believe, are that of a family and of a building. But I think the, probably the, the, the ultimate picture that's used in the New Testament is the word, the body of Christ. And the focus of that discussion is to say in Romans 12, 5, that you are the body of Christ. And here's the way Paul says it. He says, just as each one of us has one body with many members, so in Christ we who are many form one body and each member belongs to all the others. And the focus of that statement is many parts belonging to each other, living together in, 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 in a very beautiful and glorious way, just like your human body functions. The focus when you look at the human body is a picture is that there is a tremendous amount of diversity, but there's also 
a tremendous degree of unity. Uh, recently, I've experienced a breaking in part of my body. Uh, my right shoulder, I'm pretty sure I've done somewhat uh, serious damage to my rotator cuff. So what my first symptom of it was this. I kept waking up at night kind of on an hourly basis. And I'm like, why am I awake? And then my shoulder began to hurt. And over time, I've been realizing I probably got a an issue with my shoulder, which means that my body now is, generally speaking, unhealthy. Okay? Uh, because every part needs to contribute in, or in order for my physical well-being to be whole and solid. I went uh, bowling with my family on uh, Friday. I thought I would show them how good I really am. <laughs> and uh, I actually, in God's providence, worked out pretty well. I got up to bowl, totally not thinking that my shoulder's fine. I'm left-handed, but I bowl with my right hand. I told you last week I'm weird, right? So, but that's true. So uh, one of my son-in-laws goes and bowls, and they did okay. And I said, I can do better. So I got up and I did, you know, my full, all body in motion, everything working, beautiful ball strike. And my shoulder is screaming at me, saying that was it, no more. Now, the cool thing was I got a strike. So I just kind of sat down and said, okay, I'm not throwing any more balls. And God, thank you that my son-in-law's got to see me <laughs> in such a glorious light. So what did I learn? There was something I wanted to do, but because of one of my body parts not functioning well or being damaged and wounded, the uh, unity of my body has been affected because one part is broken. And there are things that I can't do. I don't like to do anything above my shoulder right now, all right, because it induces pain and it makes me back away from the test that the rest of my body, my mind and my eyes and my ears all want to see done, but can't because there's a break. We live in a culture that tends to value individualism rather than unity. It does acknowledge diversity and tends to immerse itself in that individualism, but it does not tend to value unity. It talks a lot about it, but it does very little to get there. The truth from God's word is that we are better together by God's design than we are alone. Life together is God's design for Christians. And that's a phrase that Dietrich Bonhoeffer coined in a book that he wrote called Life Together. And I'm, I'm kind of springboarding off of that title for this sermon, even though I can't find my copy of Life Together. It's a book that I read years ago that deeply influenced and impacted my thinking about the church. God has called us to live life together. He wants us to be in interdependent relationships because... The Bible as a whole, particularly the New Testament, teaches that God changes our lives in the context of relationships. He works through the body as a whole to allow us to become effective. So individual parts are strengthened as we relate to each other well. And this morning I want to kind of go through this discussion with the understanding that some bodies are unhealthy and some bodies are healthy. Some churches are healthy, and some churches are healthy. The truth probably is that every church has an area in which there is some type of deficiency, just like my shoulder. And there are times that we need to be focusing on various aspects of what's happening in our church life and this understanding of vital relationships. The goal of 
biblical teaching is that we would become a healthy body. You will never find the New Testament focusing on size. Okay, I think as I read through the book of Acts, I'm just in a quick recollection, I believe there's only one time that the the number of people present is emphasized, and I think that's to demonstrate the magnitude of the work that the Spirit had done in that situation in sweeping people into the kingdom of God. But the, the, the overarching emphasis of the New Testament is the health of the body, not the size of the body. Sadly, at the, the church in America in the late 90s and early 2000s was overrun by a group that focused on church growth. And it's not bad to focus on church growth because it's likely that the more healthy we are as a church family, the more we will grow. That, I believe, is part of God's design. It's what healthy things do, okay? They tend to, to grow and reproduce. So the goal of my discussion this morning is to understand how can we become healthy as the body of Christ? How does that happen? What is God's design and intention? The key to health is each part functioning as it was intended by God to function. And so let's read through our text this morning, and then I want to make some observations. So Romans 12, verse 9, a text on enriching life together. That is focusing on the the, the spiritual vitamins, if you will, that are in this text that help us as the body of Christ to become everything we were meant to be. Verse 9 says this, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil and cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not become conceited. So here's what I believe. I believe, based on the teaching of the New Testament, that every Christian should be committed to a local church family. In other words, we should be desiring to be vitally connected to a group of believers so that we can live out our obligation as the body of Christ before a world that so desperately needs to see a clear picture of who Christ is. And and you may assume this morning that if you say, okay, well, then I'm going to commit. And if we all get committed, then the picture gets rosy and everything is smooth and everybody gets along and there's never problems and you're dreaming. You're dreaming. This text aims to help in corrective ways. It acknowledges, and I believe a very helpful way, that life together is not always beautiful. It's, it's kind of like marriage. Wedding days are amazing. Okay, post-honeymoon days... That can be up for grabs, depending on the the level of sinfulness and selfishness that is invading the individual hearts that make up those relationships. As you commit to church life, I don't want you to think that because you're committing, things will go smoothly and love will overflow and everyone will have joy and happiness. No, this is a text that tells us how to maintain and fix and help and, 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 and encourage the body 
to continue to be everything that God wants it to be. The truth is that we are prone to have issues when we live together. I believe it's one of the reasons that many Christians choose isolation. I'm going to tell you this. It's easier and harder to live in isolation. It's both. Because I am missing many crucial inputs into my life that make me unhealthy, but I'm avoiding the difficulty of life together. And I want to encourage you this morning to understand that life together is hard. Being married is not the easiest thing you will do. I say to people, when I do marriage ceremonies now, I am tempted to, say, to ask the bride and groom to reply after their vows, so help me God, not I will, because you can't. And I think the same thing is true in the body of Christ, that we need to come before God and say, God, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm prone to want to be part of the picture that you paint, but as I move into that environment, into the body of Christ, I find that it's broken and flawed and sometimes not real attractive. So what do you do? I think what you do is you drift into a text like this and you ask God to work in your heart so that your life can change first, so that you become a healthy contributor to what God is doing in your church life, so that his name and his glory is exalted above everything through his church, the body of Christ. So let's begin to work through this text and look at what we will call directives, three directives, and then there's some outcomes or natural byproducts of obedience to these commands. So verse 9, the first directive is this. Love must be real. Now, most of your translations probably say something like love must be sincere. The word literally means to be unhypocritical or to be not behind a mask. Okay, it's a fascinating statement and picture. What is Paul saying? He says don't be... Don't pretend to love, but love truly. Here's the truth. I mean, we've got a lot of talk about fake news in our country. There can be fake love in the church. It's not driven by a desire for the benefit of others. It's stage. It's acting. All right, it's the stuff of theater where we give each other a greeting that is not the true essence of our heart. We act concerned about others. And that's the problem. We need to be concerned about each other. And the love that Paul calls for here is a self-sacrificing desire for the benefit and good and encouragement of each other. So we need to be sure that we are really caring and really loving each other. Not only in word, but in deed and in truth. So that the statements that we make about our affection for one another are followed by passionate action. Now, Paul then qualifies that, I think, in two ways. He says, hate what is evil and cling to what is good. And these words are both in this uh, present tense, continue to be identifying and hating things that are evil, and continue to be identifying and loving things that are good. So things that are good are things that are beneficial to the health of the church, and things that, are, that we're to hate are things that are detrimental. Now, here's what I want you to think about. Jesus could summarize the Ten Commandments by saying this. Love God with all your heart and love your neighbor like you love yourself. Okay, now what is he saying? I think, I think if you read through the second half of the Ten Commandments, you're going to find six commands that talk about our relating to each other. Every one of them is stated in the negative. 
Okay, everyone's stated in the negative. So here's, the, here's what it says, something like this. Don't steal. Okay, now th- that's negative, meaning there's nothing I can do to accomplish that. I just avoid certain behavior. What's the thrust of that command? How can Jesus say that the summary statement of the commands in terms of this type of relationship is, is loving each other? How can he say that? Because when he says don't steal, what does he mean? And what God means is this. He's encouraging generosity. You find it when you read it in Ephesians 4. You find another command that says don't lie. What does that mean? It means be truthful in your relating with each other. It says don't commit adultery. That means be faithful in your marital relationship. So every one of the negative commands that you find in the, in the Ten Commandments can be translated into positive action in the body of Christ. And that's how we begin to live out a sincere love. We stop doing certain things and we begin to do things that demonstrate fulfillment of the heart of those commands and laws. And I think what you see in this then is this. You find creed and conduct begin to merge. Belief and behavior begin to affect one another so that as a Christian, I'm not simply a person who knows truth, but I'm a person who begins to live truth. Here's what I believe. I believe that a church that passionately and sincerely loves, particularly in its immediate context, catches the eye of a watching world. I believe I live in a world that is longing to see genuine, true love that is active in its concern for others. And I believe the church of Christ exists to honor God by showing them that that kind of love is possible. A man named Lewis said this. He said, the church is people who give loving proof of a living God to the world around them. And folks, here's what people need to see. They need to see us as believers proving to them that the love that we speak of and claim is true because it's lived out in our lives in the context of relationships that they know aren't easy. And that's the task that God has given to us as a church. Our love must be real. How we relate to one another in the context of our Christian life is the beginning of gospel sharing because it reflects the power of God to transform lives to a world around us that is longing for that kind of change. May God help us to be people who don't complain about the darkness that we see around us. And I, I don't know if you ever get irritated by this, but sometimes it's just it's one of those things that I find irritating. I find I live sometimes in a zone where people tend to be very quick to complain about how dark it is, and they stop there. I think what we need to do is, is to become people who are lighting a candle instead of complaining about darkness. And Jesus said to the church, when you're living life together, you're the light of the world. You're that city set on a hill. You're the place where the glory of God and the power of God and the liberating work of God is made known. When people see us loving each other in a way that is powerful and attractive, that's the beginning of evangelism. That's when people begin to ask, what's going on with you or why are you so different? And then we have the opportunity to bring to them the glorious truth of the gospel. Your daily life choices in this context matter. Your obedience to simple biblical directives matters. Here's what I believe. I believe that Satan always wants to whisper to us that our input and our obedience is of little value. 
And I believe this is a text because it has a list of directives for the church, a list of imperatives, things that God wants us to do. What is that saying? It's saying that God values and wants us to maximize our influence by simple obedience, not to, to, to large commands, but to daily steps of our daily life so that we can begin to influence and be the salt and light that God intends for us to be. And I want to encourage you to, to light the candle of love, real love, genuine love, sincere love, so that a watching world sees the difference that Christ intends to bring into our lives. Verse 10, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, be devoted to each other in love. I believe that this devotion that Paul talks of here flows out of a proper understanding of body life. It flows out of an understanding not of the parts, the anatomy, but of the physiology of how things are, are created by God and designed by God to work together to form a, a unified, visible image, a powerful image of Christ to the world around us. This idea of being devoted to one another, the word literally means to cultivate familial affections. It's a word that, that drives at the understanding that the relationships that we have in the body of Christ are different and should be stronger than the relationships that we have out in the world, even different, and this is something that kind of blows me away when I think about this, even different than the relationships that we experience in our physical family, okay? I want you to think about in Jesus's life, I think it's Matthew 12, People come to Jesus and say, hey, your mother and brothers are outside and they want to see you. And Jesus gives a fascinating response that is instructive for understanding this idea of familial devotion to one another. He says, who is my mother and brother and sisters? Right? He said, who are they? Because they're assuming what? That those people that you are physically related to are the people that you're closest to. And Jesus kind of flips that around. Who's my mother and brother and sister? It's those that do the will of God. Those that are devoted to life together. Those that follow God's commands and honor him. Jesus says, that's my real family. I don't think Jesus is dissing Mary and the other siblings. What he's saying is that there is in Christ this new, beautiful family that God has drawn you into. In which he longs for and desires for you to have a strong affection and a strong familial relationship. Be devoted to one another. And then he says, honor one another above yourselves. To honor is to accord high value to, to reckon as deserving of help because they are part of that spiritual family. I want you to think about your relationship to brothers and sisters in Christ. Do you you live with the sense of obligation, not dutiful, Okay, not I have to or she'll be mad at me or he'll be mad at me, but, but, but a sense that in Christ we have been called into something where we are responsible for one another's well-being. And understanding that well-being affects how we represent Christ to the world around us. Do I value these relationships that God has called us into? Do I honor others above myself? And I, I think Paul is pulling off of of, of an idea that comes from Christ when you see him washing the feet of the disciples, when you see him humbling himself and preferring others above himself, ultimately that is expressed in the work of the cross where the love of God and the affection of God towards us is so powerfully manifested and made clear. The key phrase that begins to emerge in verse 10 is the phrase, one another. 
Okay, and what, what I, what, here's what, as you read through this text, you're going to find one another in most translations shows up on three occasions. Okay, it comes up in verse 10, and then it comes up in verse 16, almost bookending this discussion. There's an assumption or implication that every command is tied to that phrase. It, it kind of dominates this text, and it calls us to be devoted in the context of relationship to loving each other sincerely and being devoted to mutual care for one another. I think that's the thrust of this text. So it comes up three times. Here, here's, I think, what that means. I think what that means is this, that the key biblical directives that are given to the church that would mark us out as obedient Christians, those directives cannot be obeyed in isolation. Okay? So I may think I'm being an obedient Christian, but if I am not committed to contributing to the body as a whole, I am not loving the church that God wants me to love in the way that he wants me to love her. Okay? So the, the, the thrust of this text is towards one another. Every command, you can read it and understand that it's worked out in the context of relationships. That is God's design. Now, the next phrase to me is one of the most exciting uh, aspects of this text because it kind of ties things together. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. And then he says this, never be lacking in zeal. What does that mean? It means to have the wind knocked out of your sails. Okay, it means to lose passion, to lose desire, to lose vision, to lose focus, to lose an understanding of the importance of the thing that God has called you to. So Paul says, never be lacking in zeal. And I think Paul says that because I have a tendency to get tired of relating to people at times. I've helped this or that person so many times. There's, there's no substantial change. There's no progress. And what happens? We begin to lack zeal and desire, Right? But then Paul says this, but keep your spiritual fervor. Okay, so maintain zeal, passion. That's said because the truth is that relationships can be demanding and draining at times, can't they? That's why sometimes you stay in isolation. It's costly to get involved in the lives of others when they're struggling. But it's what God calls you to do. Okay, you can stay in your comfortable zone, but you can't stay in your comfortable zone and obey God. And I think it's very important that we understand that. God has called us into family. He has gifted us to serve and to help one another. And the way that we maintain our spiritual passion or fervor is, I think, revealed in this text. And so just follow what this says. Don't lack in zeal. Instead, keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Now, all of your translations, you probably have different ways that that's stated. And you might be going like, what? That's not what my text says. Let me, let me give you, I'm going to give you what the Greek words are in English, okay? This is what the Greek words are in English. By the Spirit, be burning. Okay? Keep your spiritual fervor. Literally translates, by the Spirit. Be burning. One translation puts it this way. By the Spirit, be aglow. Okay? What's the picture? This is a powerful picture. By the Spirit, be burning. This is not the result of my spirit. 
Okay? Some people, well, that's about your personal spirit. In context, it's very difficult to arrive at that conclusion because the context is driving on the topic of spiritual gifts in a spirit-filled church that is inflaming our hearts with love for God. This is the result, not of my spirit, but of God's spirit. Uh, Schreiner, one of the uh, commentators in the book of Romans, says this. He says, believers are to burn in their spirits, but the means by which this is done is the power of the Holy Spirit. He comes to fan into flame, to awaken our hearts. And to cause us to be a church that, I, I think that, that if I was to give you the equivalent to be burning by the Spirit, I mean it, I think it means to have a holy enthusiasm for what God is doing. To be lit by the Spirit, to be filled with, with joy and desiring to be empowered by the Spirit in relationship to one another. Enthusiasm in spirit or by the spirit is not theoretical, nor is it experiential primarily. It is something that we do experience, but it's not sought as an experience. It's something the Spirit of God does in our hearts that brings us alive, fills us with passion, and allows us to make a difference in people's lives. I believe the main ministry of the Spirit is to make clear to us the life-altering truth of the work of Christ which is what this text is building on if you read Romans 1 through 11. There is an exposition of the gospel that causes Paul to say, I urge you, brothers and sisters, give yourselves completely to God. Be burning with joy by the Spirit. Be aglow because you understand how glorious the gospel message is and it frees you from individualism and selfishness and unleashes you to serve powerfully in the body of Christ by the Spirit. See, what happens is our passion for Christ goes low. And here's what will inevitably always go with it, your love for others. Because it's only when I know I am loved by Christ that I am capable of loving others and serving others in difficulty as I should. So Paul's encouragement is this. By the Spirit, be aglow. By the Spirit, be acknowledging and understanding and reclaiming the truth that we sung about so beautifully this morning. The enthusiasm that Paul calls for is sourced in the Holy Spirit who makes truth about Jesus increasingly clear to us. That revelation does what? It inflames my heart. I don't know if you experienced this when we sing songs like we sung this morning. Come behold the wondrous mystery. Look at truth that I have sung for 30 plus years. And it still encourages my heart and still thrills my heart. I think this is what happens to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. A very similar kind of text. They are walking along and and the circumstances of life, the death of Christ, have left them in despair. And Christ comes and he walks along beside them and begins to argue with them in, in, in in an apologetic sort of way. He begins to reason with them that the Christ had to suffer and go through this. And here's what happens. As they're walking... Suddenly, Jesus is taken from them, and then they're walking further, and as they begin to think about what they have experienced and seen, here's what they say to each other. Did not our hearts burn within us? Weren't our hearts ignited when he began to clarify truth about his Crosswork and about how that is so beautifully tied to the Old Testament story and leads us into this new community that God is building called the church. Hearts set afire by just what? Hearing the story. 
I love that. Paul says, keep your spiritual fervor. Be lit afire by the Holy Spirit. Let him warm and fill, not in some heavy-duty experiential way, but truth welling up and building passion and amazement at what God has done. That's why we sing Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. As we were singing that, I thought, I have sung this so many times. But it doesn't lose its power to affect my heart. Because I think the Spirit takes that truth and inflames and impassions and ignites our hearts to make them aglow. Now, here's how I think of this text. I think in this text, I, I, I have a picture of it. And here's, here's the way I put it in my notes. When God sets a man or church on fire the world will come to watch. When, when God does a work in our midst that exalts the glory of Christ and exalts the gospel and we begin to see our lives changed and us relating to and loving one another, I believe a world out there will come to watch and see a burning man, woman, or church. There's something lit a flame about that that makes the gospel attractive. Folks, this is the beginning of evangelism. It's us loving Christ and understanding what he's done so that our heart by the Spirit is, is, is it, it's made clearer and our hearts begin to burn and flame and glow with joy. Oh, how he loves me. Jesus is calling in a way that begins to affect the new community that God is building. People who have been delivered by the grace of God and who are beautifully changed by it. It was an old song that I used to sing when I was a kid. Never understood the words till I looked at it in light of this text. This came, as I was studying yesterday, this thought came out. There's an old song called Spirit of God. Here's what it says. Spirit of God, descend upon my heart. Wean it, my heart from earth, through all its pulses move. Stoop to my weakness, mighty as thou art. And listen to this. Make me love thee as I ought to love. Folks, here's the truth. If God, by the Spirit, did not make Jesus clear to me, I could never see that truth. If God did not cause and work in my heart by the Spirit in a transformational way to cause me to love him, I would not love him. The song goes on to say this, Teach me to love thee as thine angels love. One holy passion filling all my frame. The kindling of the heaven-descended dove. My heart make an altar, and I love the flame. You see, folks, the fuel of passion lit by the Spirit is the gospel. It's the good news that God has saved us to know and proclaim to the world around us. And a heart lit a fire by a love for the gospel will genuinely love because now it knows what love is. And it will be devoted to others because that's who Christ is. And it will be a church that is fundamentally and gloriously transformed. And I love what the text says next. Keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. What's the aim of God working in my heart? What is the aim of God deeply affecting me, setting my heart aflame by the Spirit? What is the aim of that? The aim of it in this text is very clear. Keep your spiritual fervor. Be lit by the Spirit and be serving the Lord, which means what? Serve Him by serving your brothers and sisters in Christ. Go to Matthew 25. Here's what Jesus says. People stand before Him. Jesus says, 
you loved me. And they said, when did we love you? He says, inasmuch as you did it unto the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. When you loved them, you were loving me. And that service to others is service to Christ. I love that. I think that is, 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 is glorious and beautiful truth. Service flows naturally out of a heart that has been set afire by the Spirit. It does not need to be compelled. The arm does not need to be twisted. Tim Hoff doesn't need to get up in the pulpit as a pastor at the chapel of Warren Valley and cajole you into doing something finally, make you feel guilty. And now what do I need to do? I need to cause you by the preaching of the Word of God and the glory of Christ to give you truth that the Spirit can fan into flame. And God begins to work. I think, I think this text is also mirrored on what Paul says to Timothy. Paul says this to Timothy. Timothy, you're getting tired. You're losing your passion and love for others. Here's what he says to him. He says, Timothy, fan into flame the gift of the Spirit that God has given you. Timothy, think gospel thoughts and let the Spirit take the fuel of gospel thoughts and cause it to combust into flames that a watching world longs to see. See, folks, that's what people need to see. People who are so amazed by the love of God that is revealed through the gospel that they now begin to see it by the Spirit in a way that is life-changing. You see, we have a choice in church life. We can, we can manipulate you to try to get you to do the things that, gosh darn, you're not doing. Okay? Or we can preach Christ to you and let the Spirit of God amaze you again. And then you will naturally be devoted to one another. You will naturally serve each other. And that service will overflow out into the world around us. And people will know that you're part of a church family that loves like that. I'm interested. I'm curious. But see, that's how we change the world around us. It's not about us. It's not about this church. It's about the glory of God. And, and, and that's what should drive us. The reason we should be concerned about the chapel being a community aglow with the Spirit lit by the gospel is so that more people can come to know the one who saves and redeems and changes forever. That's why. So that at the end of the day, God in heaven is glorified through his saving work, through his church. And then here's what you and I get to do, and I love this. We get to stand back and say, wow, look what God has done. Full of passion and stunned, amazed by the power of God. Now, Real quick, I'm just going to touch on these, these last thoughts. When our hearts are lit aflame and we are sincerely loving each other and devoted to one another, there are a couple things that will begin to happen. Difficult obedience will begin to happen. The things that I know I should do but have a hard time doing will all of a sudden become the things that I know I should do and want to do because the Spirit is enlivening my heart by the gospel. Verse 12, we will persist in good. Joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. We will be persistent in doing good. Because body life will not always be exhilarating. And here's the thought that has always amazed me. Jesus at times wanted to quit. In the garden, Father, if it's possible, let this pass. Why? Because the burden of his work was heavy, surprising. 
we will willingly serve one another. Verse 13, ministry is sensing and meeting needs. It's, 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 it overflows out of a heart that is set on fire by the Spirit, and it comes out in concrete demonstrations. We will love difficult people. Verse 14 says, love your enemies. That's outside. Peter filled with, or Stephen filled with the Spirit as he is being martyred in the early church in Acts chapter 7, looks up into heaven, filled with the Spirit, begins to say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He didn't take it personal. He took it through the eyes of Christ, who on the cross said, Father, forgive them. It's that, that gospel is that transformational. We will empathize with others genuinely. Verses 15 and 16 are powerful. Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. And lastly, we will get along. Verse 16 says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Don't be conceited. But think of others. Associate with the lowly and do not be conceited. Don't be full of yourself. The gospel aims to destroy individualism and self-centeredness. It aims to draw us into the body of Christ, humble servants set aflame by the work of the Spirit. May God, by His grace, help us to love others sincerely from a heart that has been inflamed by the gospel of Christ. In conclusion, I ask you this question. Am I contributing to the health of my church family by selfless care and concern for others? Do I seek context for this? Do I involve myself in settings where that can happen? I encourage you to ask yourself this question this morning. If everyone in my church had my level of commitment, gave, learned, participated, served in the way that I do, would this church be healthy? Would it even exist? That's the kind of question we need to ask ourselves. And the only way that I will commit to the body of Christ in a selfless and enduring way is when my heart is lit aflame by the gospel of Christ. It would be transformational for the chapel family if each of us began to value interdependent relationships with each other. If each of us would say, I am going to seek to cultivate one new relationship this year or two relationships this year with a brother or sister in Christ that I can help and serve by the power of the Spirit. And lastly, this morning, as we come to the Lord's table, I want to give you this reminder. Remember that when Christ saved you through the glorious gospel, he did it by associating with the lowly. He did it by being counted together amongst sinners like you and I. And the thing that should thrill us the most, I believe, about the gospel is that in spite of my deep sinfulness, Christ gave himself he gave his life to change mine. To bring me into a personal relationship with him that would change my life forever. He drew me into a community that will last forever. Into relationships that I will value forever. That's the work of God. And that's what he has done. May we say together, oh God, make this work of Christ so clear. And light my heart so afresh that by the spirit I become a burning Christian, lit a flame so that the world who sees me says there's something different about you. There's a glow about you. There's a passion about you. I want to know where you get that. I want to know how that happens. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. Uh, 
Father, how we so desperately need to understand what it is to be the church of Christ, the body of Christ. Father, set our hearts aflame this morning with the truth that changes everything. And that is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, was buried, and rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Let that truth inform our passion, our love, our amazement, and let it drive all that we do in church life as your children. We pray this in the glorious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.